Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, the community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. Well, I told Scott last night, honestly, what I feel like doing this morning is preach for like five minutes and then take 25 minutes and just gush because I'm so excited to be here with you and to see this church. I've been looking at the photos and hearing the stories, stories, but to see it in action in the flesh, it is overwhelming for me, and I am so honored to be here. And I want you to know, if I was not in New Orleans with my family, we weren't doing what Scott was just describing, we would have already moved to Madison to be a part of this. I am, and that's not just like a nice thing because I'm Scott's brother and I'm supposed to like puff him. Like we would be here sitting in that seat just to be a part of this. I believe in what God is doing at Christ Church Madison. I believe in it. And you should look around. I hope you already do because it's not hard. You should look around already and be full of gratitude for what God has already done and full of so much expectation for what he can do. It is a beautiful thing, and I'm so excited to see it and just to be a part of it this morning. As Scott already said, what Paul is doing here in this letter, what we read in Ephesians 3, is Paul is coming to encourage the church. But here's what's interesting about how he starts, okay? He says, for this reason, look at the first verse, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Here's what's interesting about that. In ancient Israel, more often than not, you didn't bow your knees when you prayed. You stood, actually. You would only bow and kneel when you prayed if there was an intense, passionate, earnest concern that you had. Let me give you an example. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, minutes before his crucifixion, praying so hard he sweats drops of blood. Jesus is bowing when he prays that prayer, isn't he? He is on his knees. So let's ask to think about this for a second. When Paul prays for you, <laughs> what is it that brings him to his knees? What brings the Apostle Paul to his knees when he prays for the church? And here's what he says. He names it. Here's what he says, that we might be strengthened to comprehend the truth about God. That's what it is. That we might experience it to know something about God and to know him yourself are two entirely different things, right? The first one only requires information, to know something about God, just a little information. The second one requires an encounter, to meet him, the God of the universe, yourself, and this is what Paul is praying for. Here's how we're going to break it down through a series of three questions. We're Presbyterians and we preach in threes, okay, where I come from. Here we go, three questions. Why is experience so necessary? And secondly, what is it exactly that we experience? And lastly, how can that experience grow? Why, what, how? The British pastor and scholar John Stott said in his commentary on these words in the opening lines, he says, when I first read this, it was puzzling to me. And it just didn't make a lot of sense because you see that Paul is praying for Christians. He's praying for Christians, but look at the things that he prays for. What he says is, I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Here's the thing, though. None of us can be Christians without Christ dwelling in our hearts, right? He prays for Christians that they might know the love of Christ. None of us can be Christians without knowing something of the love of Christ. So why would Paul pray 
for Christ Church Madison to have something that God has already given them. In, eight, in 1989, this is a true story, there's a Pennsylvania man. He goes to a flea market in the country, and he sees a painting on sale for $4. He hated the painting, but he loved the frame. So here's what he does. He buys it for $4. He goes home, takes the painting out, throws the painting away, goes to clean off the frame, and notice, notices that folded up in the back of this frame was a document, an old document, a very old document. So he calls a friend who refers him to someone else, who refers him to something else, someone else, until eventually he's talking to Sotheby's, and they send out a scholar to come take a look at this document. It's a copy of the Declaration of Independence, one of only a few printed by John Dunlap, the official recorder of the Continental Congress in his Philadelphia shop on the night of July 4th, 1776. Buys it for $4, sells it for $2.4 million. True story. Here's what Paul is saying, and this is why Ephesians 3 is here. We are all like this man when it comes to the gospel. We are like this man. You receive the gift of eternal life. We just sung about it. The gift of eternal life. Did you know, true story, that historians think that Alexander the Great, most of his conquests of the world, could have been due in large part to his search for the fountain of youth, meaning the water that you drink of it and you never die. Which means, if you're Alexander the Great and you possess everything in the world, you have everything on earth at your disposal. Do you know the one thing that keeps Alexander the Great awake at night that he does not have? The one thing that he was restless to discover? Eternal life. Let me give you one line from Jesus himself. In John 4, he's talking to a woman at the well, and here's what he says. Whoever drinks of the water that I give will never be thirsty again, for it will become in them a spring of water welling up unto eternal life. If you are a Christian, you have this. Amen? Amen. This is what you possess. Eternal life, the gift of God by grace through faith, the forgiveness of God through the death of his son on the cross, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the third member of the triune God. If you are a believer, this is what you possess. However, to possess something great and to comprehend what you possess are two entirely different things. Unless you have an experience of the gifts of God, they're like folded up declarations of independence just hiding in your bulletin, hiding in your Bible, hidden from you on a Sunday morning. You have to experience it. It's one thing to receive the offer. And if you are in this service right now, you are receiving the offer. It's one thing to receive the offer. It's another thing to experience its power. So Paul falls to his knees praying. Here's what he's praying. Father, they know they have something, but they don't, they don't really know. They know they have something, but they don't really know. They have some information, but what they need is an experience of the truth. A couple years ago at a tech conference in Lake Tahoe, Eric Schmidt, who was then the Google of CEO, uh, the Google of CEO, the CEO of Google, that's what we call too much coffee and not enough sleep. Eric Schmidt, who was the CEO of Google, was giving a talk. 
And here's how he opened up his talk with this bombshell. He said that currently in our technological world, this is a direct quote, we now create more information, more data in two days than the entire amount created from the dawn of civilization up until 2003. Hmm? <laughs> I found some stats. Every second, there are 40,000 Google searches. Every minute, 4.2 million YouTube videos are watched. 456,000 tweets every minute, 47,000 Instagram photos, 990,000 Tinder swipes. We thought Instagram was crushing. Mm-mm. Tinder is secretly on top. You know it, right? Every minute, 16 million, 100, 16 million texts, 156 million emails are sent. Now, all of that information really helped Google and Eric Schmidt. It made him $13.6 billion to be exact. <laughs> but here's what he said in his talk. I spent my years believing that having all of this information was just a neutral thing. And now I wonder whether or not it's good. Here's what he's saying. In our day and age that we all live, it's safe to say that we know more than ever. And yet it's probably the case that we comprehend less than ever. We are lost in a sea of information overload. We are lost in a sea of distraction, constant phone pings and images and headlines. It's hard enough to sit in just an hour and a half long service. Constant information overload, most of the information a thousand miles wide and an inch deep. And here's what Paul is saying. Paul knows that there is a great danger when that distraction becomes translated to the knowledge of God, when it becomes spiritual distraction. So he's falling to his knees praying, Father, don't let their faith be lost in a sea of information. Don't let what Jesus Christ has done at 10.40 a.m. be just another passing headline. Now, we know this prayer. If you're a Christian, you know this prayer well. And if you're not there yet and you're sinking, it won't be long before you know it too. It's something like this. I think here's how it plays out. It doesn't happen all the time this way, but it happens enough that we can talk about it. It's something like being at the end of a long day full of responsibilities. And you go to get ready for bed. And you're lying on your back in the middle of the night. And in that moment, you let out a single prayer. You know what this is like. And I think nine times out of 10, if we could listen to those prayers and say, what in that moment are we praying for the vast majority of the time? If you had to find one conjoining thesis, one main subject, we might name different things, but by and large, with your last breath, at the end of the day, you pray something like Ephesians 3. God, give me strength to comprehend. If you're, if you're there, show me, right? Let me know. Let me experience what you declared over my life. But here's why information is not enough in that moment. Let's break this down. Maybe you've strung some days together where you're facing something really hard or confusing or scary in your life. Let's just take one thing that's been read in this service alone. Our psalm, Psalm 139. Here's what it said. We literally all said it together. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? 
If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Now here's the deal. If that's just another bit of information, like that's just another page in the bulletin, that's just another one of those readings before we get to the other parts of the service. If that's just another bit of information, new joy and courage and vigor is hidden in your bulletin like the Declaration of Independence was hidden in that frame. But if you experience that truth, the moment that that becomes a reality and you sense the fact that you are never able to flee from the presence of God, then when you make your bed, maybe in the depths, even there, that joy and courage is yours because you just pull it from his presence, which never leaves. But information is not enough, is it? Let me do one more. Maybe you've strung some days together where you're really fighting sin and temptation and you're losing. And as you're losing, you're running out of strength and you just feel overwhelmed by that. You can know 1 Timothy 1.15, which says this, this is a trustworthy saying, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now hear me, if that's just another piece of information, that's just another ping on your iPhone. You go to bed heavy as a boulder and you wake up heavy as a boulder and you can't shake that guilt or self-condemnation. But if you have experienced the power of those words, you go to sleep in grace and you wake up in grace and you take those words and you claim them over your life and you know they are true because you've encountered the God who made it true. But the information alone won't do that for you, will it? You must comprehend it, and to comprehend it, you must be strengthened. I heard a sermon on this passage given by a pastor in his late 60s on the West Coast, and he's an incredible preacher, and here's what he said. When I come to Paul's words in Ephesians 3, there's only one thing I feel like doing, and that is to curl up in a ball. <laughs> and that's not timidity or fear. What he's expressing is the revelation, the vision, the words themselves are almost too great to bear. I want to get at that feeling. Let's go back to this. Follow along with me. Maybe now we can hear this prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend. Now let's stop right there. How does God give us strength to comprehend? Here's, here's what Paul says. You're strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. All right. We're going to take a deep, deep dive into the text for a second, and then we're going to come back up for air, all right? There's a handful of different ways to describe dwelling in Greek. And there's many words for dwelling that are weaker, and their connotation is they're describing a temporary abode, like a, a temporary place where you just hang out for a while or like you'd stay in the days in for a night, all right? There's a lot of, a lot of words for dwelling in Greek that get at that, but there's one word, one, for dwelling in Greek, that means permanent abiding. Katoi keo. 
permanent residence, fully settled down to live. Now follow me for a second. Hang with me on this. We got to connect some dots. In Colossians 1, chapter 1, verse 19, here's what Paul says. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Katoiketo, permanent residence. Now, here comes the curl up in a ball part. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, here's what it says. Now Jesus Christ, in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, here's what Paul says, dwells in the hearts of believers by faith. Katoiketo, permanent residence. So let's, let's just get this straight for a second. We're lying on our backs in the middle of the night asking God for strength, and this is how he responds? What? Do you see what he's done? Do you see how close he has come to strengthen you, that you might experience the truth about God? What he's saying is the same way that God dwells in Jesus Christ is the same way that Jesus dwells in the hearts of believers by faith. This is what God has done for you to encounter him, how close he has come, how magnificent is the work of God on your behalf. Let me, let me pull this out one more. Here's what he says. It's the Holy Spirit working in your inner being with power. Let's just ask a question together. What kind of power must that be? What is the power of the Holy Spirit? Let me give you another one of Paul's words. This is from Romans 8, chapter 11. Here's what he says. The Spirit of God who raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives in you. Now, can I pause for a second? Do we think we have just bought a picture frame for $4? Or do we understand what we're receiving in the offer of God? Let me go back to it. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same spirit who lives in us. What this means is the same power and the same person who was more powerful than the power of sin and death three days after the crucifixion is the same power and the same person working in your inner being. Do you understand the offer? The spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you. All of this geared so that you might comprehend what you truly have in Jesus Christ and not walk away from service after service and let your faith be lost in a sea of information. All right, two and three are shorter, I promise. Or Scott's never gonna let me come back and preach again. What is that exactly? Like, what do we experience exactly? Don't you want to ask that? We got to get at that. Like, what is it that we encounter exactly? We've seen why it's so necessary and what God does in order that the experience is even possible. But what is it that we experience? Look, no one ever accused Paul for being short on words, okay? The Apostle Paul never got blamed for being simplistic, all right? Paul knows there are innumerable things worth asking for and reflecting on. But here, Paul names only one thing. 
only one thing. And there's a lot of other phrases that orbit around this one thing, explaining how great it is. But at the bottom line, he's praying, Father, if you would do anything for Christ Church Madison, do this. If you would do anything for the Ephesians, do this. And I think the reason that Paul does this before we look at it is because he knows that even though the Ephesians and the Madisonians and the New Orleanians have so many great needs and so many great questions, if they can just comprehend this one thing, God will provide for them and answer them in ways more enduring and profound than they can possibly fathom. He names what that one thing is in the first part of verse 19. Look at it with me. Here's what he says. I pray that they may have strength to comprehend the love of Christ. The love of Christ. Now, what is it like to experience the love of Christ? The point of this passage here is to explain what that experience is like. Here's what he says. I want to work through a few of these things to fill it out. I pray you're rooted and grounded in this love. Rooted and grounded. Now, look, I live in the swamp. Not only do I live in the swamp, I live in a swamp at the end of Hurricane Alley, okay? Which basically means multiple times a year, we get like, we get like 10 polar vortexes a year, except they're piping hot and they move at speeds over 100 miles an hour, okay? What happens when you live in the swamp at the end of Hurricane Alley is in order for something to stand strong, in order to be able to weather one of those storms every year, storm after storm, it has to have deep, deep roots or foundation rooted and grounded. That's why our oak trees, the only ones that have survived in a swamp at the end of Hurricane Alley, have massive, massive root systems anchoring themselves into the ground. Now it's fair to say, if I could just be a realist for a second, life can be a lot like living in a swamp at the end of Hurricane Alley. It can be a lot like that. I mean, meteorologically, it changes from place to place, but spiritually, physically, emotionally, psychologically, it's the same. Storm after storm after storm. Sickness, heartache, loneliness, suffering, and evil. It's life in a polar vortex of what, what's happening here? What's going on? What's the one thing that's going to keep you standing strong through every storm in this life? What must you be rooted and grounded in? Do you see what Paul's naming? Do you see how direct it is? You're rooted in the love of Jesus. Rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. Here's how it works. You preach the gospel to yourself. The gospel isn't just for you for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. You preach the gospel to yourself always. You say, if Christ came for me, to die for me, to live for me, all because of his great love, then what's going to knock you over? What's going to knock you over? He defeated death on your behalf. Name me a worse storm than that. But we, look, but we don't think, we do not think like this by default. Here's what we try to do instead. We try to control the environment. We try to control the weather. We try to control the storm through worry and willpower and white knuckling what outcome we want, what life we want. It takes one to know one through calculated, anxious moves in every part of our life. Here's the offer. Lay down the terrible burden of trying to control the storm. You can't. 
and do the one thing that will keep you standing strong. Sink your roots into the love of Jesus Christ. And until the day that God ends every storm in full, and he will, you will not be knocked over because Jesus Christ has defeated even sin and death itself, rooted and grounded. But here's what happens. Paul just sort of loses his mind, to be honest, in these verses. He just bursts at the seams. He just starts layering superlative on top of superlative. One writer actually said that human language almost collapses in this passage. I love that. And you can see it. You can see it here in these next phrases in verse 18. Let me read it. I pray you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, before my wife and I got married, when we were still dating, I'd be just like hanging with the guys and we'd be hanging out and, you know, maybe our relationship would come up and they would ask like, so how's it going? How are y'all doing? You know, guys do this too, by the way, surprisingly. (laughs) How's it going? And somebody would say, so what's happening? Like, you think y'all are going to get married? And I would say, you know, at the beginning, like, well, I don't know. We're seeing, you know, I think we're heading in that direction. And one of them would ask, well, do you love her? And I would say, absolutely. I love her. I think I'm ready to get married. But here's what I, it's safe to say that here's what I meant by that. Here's what I thought was happening. If my wife was here, she'd be looking at me like, you're going to be in the doghouse if this story doesn't end well. <laughs> here's what I, here's safe bet what I, what I meant by that. What I thought I meant was, okay, the box of love is checked. <laughs> like, I'm 27, year old, 27 years old saying the necessary prerequisite of love is fulfilled. <laughs> the requirement is met. No. To say that I fully knew something about love in a marriage because I was ready to propose, that's like saying I understand the universe because I watched Empire Strikes Back. (laughs) You're thrown into the reality of love, and then the discovery begins. True love is something that grows. Love is something that surpasses you infinitely, and you get caught up in the real thing. And then you learn what an uncontainable mystery it really is. So when Paul says, I want you to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, what is the width and length and depth and height? Just think about that phrase for a second. How can we know something that surpasses knowledge? Right? What does that mean? How can we comprehend the incomprehensible? How can we know something that is greater than we can know? Here's what he's saying. I want you to contain in your heart and mind how uncontainable it really is. You catch that? It is beyond your total comprehension. And that is what you must comprehend. How inexhaustible is the love of Christ for you? How infinite are its boundaries? That it is wide and long and deep and high and far-reaching, farther than you can possibly know. You get caught up in it, and then the discovery begins as you walk with him and follow him and learn his voice. You learn the infinite mystery. Let me just go through these things. Let's do it. We have to. How wide is the love of Christ? 
Let me give you one pertinent example. Let me just step back and I want you to think about who is writing Ephesians 3. Do you know that the Apostle Paul, a few years before he wrote these words, was literally hunting down Christians in these churches and putting them to death as a persecutor of the church. So can we just put the grace of God in perspective for a second? What does Paul understand about the width of Christ's love, knowing who the author is? What do these words mean? He's saying, I can tell you myself, it is wide enough for the murderer and the adulterer and the prideful and the unmerciful, for those with deaf ears and blind eyes and hearts like stone on a Sunday morning, for all of us with hard hearts, once knowing nothing of the love of God, it is wide enough to embrace everyone. This is what Paul is saying. It is infinitely, infinitely wide, which means no matter who you are or what you have done, it's wide enough for you. It's wide enough for you. Infinitely wide. How long is the love of Christ? Let me ask a question. Do we think that God's love is only as long as ours? I think the answer to that is yes. Yes, we do. Because what we typically think is God is only going to keep loving me if I stay faithful to him. Wrong answer. God keeps loving you because he stays faithful to you. We are saved not by the length of our love for God, but by the length of his love for us. Do you understand? We are saved not by the quality of our faith, but by the object of our faith. Philippians 1, verse 6, another one of Paul's lines, here's what he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion at the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why was Paul sure that that work would be done? Is it was because he was sure that the Philippians would stay faithful to God? No. He was sure that God would stay faithful to them. Wide, long, one more. How deep is the love of Christ? I heard it put like this, and I think we can all relate to this sitting in church. Without the story of what Jesus has done for us, which we're about to take the rest of this service to remember, without the story, to hear God say, I love you deeply. Without Jesus, it might as well just be an, the inside line in a Hallmark card. It's just, it's just an abstraction. He could tell us a hundred times. He could write it in the stars. God could send us stacks of volumes saying, I love you deeply, I love you deeply. But without Jesus, without the action, without the love of God enacted in human flesh, It'd be lost, it would mean nothing, it's fluff. But look at the depths of what God, of where God has gone to enact his love for you. Let me just, just, let me just break down the story as quickly as possible. That God Almighty, who presided in heaven, would come down to earth in the human body and in human flesh be crucified on a cross and then be buried down deep in a grave under the weight of sin and death and then descend into hell. That was God's enacted love. There is no depth that you have ever gone to 
or could ever gone to that Christ himself has not gone for you in love. Which means, which surely means, if you have put your faith in Jesus, if you would put your faith in Jesus, nothing can separate you from it. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ because there's nowhere that he has not already gone for you in love. Lastly, I'll leave you with this. What I think happens to all of us when we go through something like this, when we work through this, is that we're left with a question. It's a longing, and we just want to say, I want to say, how, okay, how does that work? Like, how do I access that, right? Like, when Monday morning circles back around and hits, like, what, how do I get into this and access that? Listen, God is the only one who can make us comprehend That's why Paul is praying to the Father for it. But as God does this for us, he calls us to seek him with everything that we have so that our response to him makes more and more room for the experience of this love to grow. I'll leave you with these things. Seek him with imagination. Seek him with your brothers and sisters. And seek him with hope. The New International Version, when it translates verse 20, here's what it says. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or imagine. I love that word. Now, I've read this passage a hundred times, and not until recently did I see this, and it just utterly knocked me off my feet. Here's the point. Here's what it's saying. If God can do more abundantly than all we can ask or imagine, then that means if we can even imagine it, it is something that God can do. You with me? Can I say that one more time? What it's saying is, now to him who is able to do more than all we can even think, what that means is, if right now you can even think to ask it, it is something that God can do for you in your life. So what does that invite us to do? I mean, seek him with imagination, you know, is one way to say it. But I think maybe a better way to say it is, when you go to God in prayer, shoot for the stars. Ask big Don't sell the love and power of God short, small expectations. I'm not saying pray for the power to fly or be, you know, something weird, to be invisible. I mean, ask him, ask him at least for the experience of this, for the love of Christ. Ask him for faith where once there was none. Are you struggling maybe being single? Ask for a spouse. Or maybe even at times better, ask for conviction of the love of God, which dwarfs the love of any other man or woman. Ask for restoration in your marriage. Ask for children that know the love of Christ for their entire life even better than you do. Ask for healing. Ask for freedom. Ask for change. If we were to grasp those words, we would either, if we weren't praying, we would start praying. Amen? And if we were praying, we would never pray the same again. Seek him with imagination. Lastly, seek him with hope. John Stott, of these last, John Stott said of these last words here, he said, uh, I skipped one. Seek him with your brothers and sisters. Hope is coming, all right? Wait for it. Verse 18, it's intriguing. Here's what he says. I pray that you may have strength to comprehend, and then he adds another phrase, with all the saints. That's not an afterthought. It's not an accident. The isolated Christian can experience God. I believe that fully. This is true. 
but you experience a fraction of it in isolation compared to what you experience when you are together with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It takes the whole people of God to know the whole love of God. Only when you're together does the picture of the width and the length and the height and the depth come into view. Christ's church, you need that here, and your church needs that with the testimony of your brothers and sisters in this city and around the rest of the world. It's not a mistake that these two phrases go together. He's saying, you're only gonna get the full strength to comprehend if you're together with all the saints. So here's at least what that, what that means. So let's press in. So get involved. So sign up. So make it a priority. Rearrange the schedule. Your family needs you, and you need them. Lastly, seek them with hope. John Stott said of these last words here, to add anything more other than the doxology would be inappropriate. Now to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Here's what you do with this last verse. You got to use the zoom out feature, okay? The point of being a Christian is not just to huddle up in the church and say, well, what I got to do is keep my little candle lit while the world remains, you know, shrouded in darkness. Just hold on to your tiny little flame and somehow keep it alive while the world is shrouded in darkness. No, here's what this is saying. The sun is coming up. The sun is rising. Jesus Christ is risen, conquered the power of sin and death, and seated right now at the right hand of the Father. The power of God is not limited to your candle. The sun is rising in the darkness, and you're the ones who know about it. What a reason to plant a church. Let Madison join in the doxology. Amen? Let him, to him be glory forever and ever in the church and throughout all generations forever. The love of Christ, it's the hope of your life and the hope of this world. May you have strength to comprehend it. Let's pray. Father, according to the great riches of your mercy, could we be rooted and grounded in love this morning? that together with all the saints we may have strength to comprehend how great is the love of Christ for us. I pray that you would take that truth and press it deep into our hearts and minds this morning. Give us the conviction of what you have done for us and all of the joy that flows from it. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.